It's good to see everybody this afternoon. I apologize if this thing starts moving around and I fiddle with it a little bit. It keeps wanting to slip off my ear. I thought my ears were big. Uh, Toy has told me my ears are big before, but they're apparently not big enough to keep this thing on my head. So uh, I'll try to just ignore that it's there. Um, we're going to talk this afternoon. This is our thir- the third part of our series on rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you remember in the first two uh, studies of this nature, uh, I want to review just a little bit while we're going through this. And so we're just going to revisit kind of the foundation for this study from 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Timothy was told, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And what we talked about last time was it's good to read the Bible, but reading and study are very different things. And study takes a lot more effort than just simply reading. God wants us to do more than just mindlessly read through the scriptures. It's good to read, but we're going to be benefited more by study because that's where we gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And those things bring about strength, they bring about growth, and that's the goal of God's word is to change our lives and to change our character and to change who we are and make us more like his son. And without study, we can't get there. So just thinking about the differences between study and reading, one of the things that he mentions here uh, in Timothy's work that he needed to be a workman that didn't need to be ashamed. And you can imagine as Timothy went around and he spoke with various different groups of people who had different beliefs, how he would encounter false doctrines. What if he didn't know the Bible? What if he didn't understand the Bible? He'd just stand there and, and be ashamed. He would look like he wasn't equipped for the work that he needed to do. So that was one of the reasons why Paul gave him this statement about not being a workman that needed to be ashamed. But the second thing he says is rightly dividing the word of truth. And I want to revisit that idea of rightly dividing for a moment. The word that's translated in Greek means to make a straight cut. This is not about taking a machete and hacking down a bunch of weeds out in the middle of a forest. This is about taking a scalpel and delicately slicing a petal off of a flower. Rightly dividing is not about hacking at God's word. It's about being very intentional and very precise with making sure that when we take God's word and we handle it and we interpret it the right way, that we get the right conclusions. And so this is the basis for these studies. Now today, uh, we want to go back and talk about something that we talked about in the first study, and that's this. There are some who believe that everything in the Bible is literal. What do I mean by that? You ever had somebody say, well, you just have to take the Bible for what it says? Well, that's true. However, it's a little more complicated than that. And, you know, another thing that we sometimes say is the Bible is simple. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay? It's really not simple in the way we would term the word simple. You ever read the book of Ezekiel? Get through about four chapters of it. And uh, if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to read that and go, well, this is easy to understand. This is very simple. The book of Revelation, for instance, not simple. There are simple teachings in the Bible. There are things that are very black and white. They're very literal. There are also other things in the scripture, which we're going to talk about, and really we're just going to scratch the surface, uh, that are not literal. So we're going to talk about that. 
The other thing that I want to ask is, is every statement in the Bible inspired? And maybe right now you're kind of thinking, well, where's he going to go with that? And we'll get there when we get there, okay? Uh, but I think you'll understand why I asked that question later on within our study. Uh, so I told you, and as Franklin prayed today, that I would hide myself in the Word. I know last time we talked a lot about translation, there was a lot of historical information. We're going to use Scripture today, uh, and I know I'm more comfortable with that, and hopefully you are too. So, is the Bible always literal? And the short answer to that is no. There are literary devices within Scripture uh, that change whether or not we just take the Bible for what it says. And let me explain that for a moment. And as I said, we're just going to scratch the surface. We do not have time. Time would fail us to really go into detail because each one of these subjects here, these uh, little topics, are so uh, ingrained in the Scriptures in so many places, we just couldn't give an example. And I, I don't think it'd be worth our time in my opinion, to take and, and be exhaustive of this. So I just want to scratch the surface on this. But the first thing I want to note is that prophecy, most of the time, was given in symbolic language. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, Brother Franklin read this for us this morning. Uh, here the Hebrew writer says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Uh, so today, uh, it's different from the way that it was in old times. But there are also some similarities. One of those is the idea of inspiration. That is that God would send the Holy Spirit. Uh, he would move men by the Holy Spirit, as Second Peter said that we studied last time. And these men would write down what the Spirit inspired them to say. But you know, God did that in various ways. For instance, how did God speak to Adam? Directly. How did God speak to Noah? Directly. How did God speak to Abraham? Directly. And by angels. And by Melchizedek. And by other ways. So God doesn't always communicate in the same way to each person. He uses a lot of different means in order to communicate. And so when we think about prophecy, that was a different method that God used to communicate with his people in the past and also with you and I today. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6, God just lays this out for them and shows that there would be a difference in the way that he communicated with Moses and the way he would communicate through the prophets. Numbers 12 and verse 6, and he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now God tells them this fact. Uh, one reason is to make a distinction about how he regards Moses as being greater than these prophets who were given dreams and visions in this way. These people were complaining against Moses, murmuring against Moses, and God said, look, it's obvious that I have set Moses apart from everyone else. So why would you be speaking against him? I chose no one else to be in my presence and speak with me directly. He said, that's not the way I've dealt with other people. But there's something else we can learn from this. 
And that is the different ways that God would speak to the prophets and he would speak to Moses. And he uses this idea that he would speak to Moses apparently. And what that means is the message would be very clear. It would be transparent. What does he mean by dark speeches? And that's what I want to think about just for a moment. As God gave the prophets these dreams and visions, he identified that as being a dark speech. Okay, What's darkness? Can you see in darkness? You can a little bit if it's not totally, you know, pitch black. Uh, I used to stay in the basement at my grandparents' house sometimes. I'll tell you, when the window shades are down, it's very, very dark. And there's not a lot of furniture in there, but you can run into a lot of things just trying to get from the bed to the bathroom. You, you just can't see much in darkness. You can make out shapes, you can kind of make out silhouettes, but it's hard to see in the dark. That's the point. Dark speeches, in other words... It's not going to be that easy to see. It's not going to be apparent. It's not going to be clear. Okay, so let's just think about this. Genesis 41 and 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, when God gave Pharaoh the dream, what did Pharaoh perceive about it? Nothing. He was confused. In fact, he called all of his wise men around and he said, I've had this dream. I want you to interpret the dream. And they said, uh, sorry, <laughs> no can do. And you remember the story that, that, the, that the, uh, the butler had, had, that had been set free from prison and he put the cup back in his hand. He said, oh, I, I, I met a guy in prison that could interpret dreams. Let's bring him up. And Joseph comes and he interprets the dream. What was the dream about? It was about cows and skinny cows eating fat cows. And it was about corn or grain, as they would have said, and these very skinny grain, ate the fat grain. Is that literal? Do you think Pharaoh thought it was literal? Well, of course not. That's why he asked for the wisest men in the kingdom to come and interpret this dark saying, this dark speech. Because it was very ambiguous, but the message was in there. They just didn't know what it was. It wasn't meant to be a literal dream about the coming of cannibalistic grains of corn. It wasn't the message. The message was veiled by this vision that he had had. In Daniel 2.26, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had had another dream that was very veiled in nature. And so... He does the same as Pharaoh. He asked for all the wise men to come. And uh, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Now, Daniel's life was on the line, okay? And the king said, Can you do what I'm asking you to do? And I want you to see Daniel's answer. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers could not declare to the king. So I want to stop for just a moment. And I want you to notice that when David talked about this dream he'd had, he called it the secret. Why? Was the dream secret? No. Nebuchadnezzar remembered everything that happened in the dream. It was very vivid. What was secret was the meaning. He didn't know what the meaning of the dream was. And Daniel recalls his attention to the truth. He says, you got all these people together, the most wise men, the magicians, all these people, and none of them could interpret this dream. Not a one. 
And then he says this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And then he goes to explain the dream. Daniel did not come out and say, well, listen, the reason why these guys couldn't interpret your dream is because I'm smarter than them, and I can look at all the signs, and I can read the tea leaves, and I can interpret your dream. He said, God is the one that gave you the vision, and he will be the one that reveals the vision to you, what the meaning is. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up. Because men have taken it upon themselves to read some of these prophetic visions and these dreams, and without looking for other scriptures to correspond with it, they just apply the symbols in whatever way they want. They'll take some number, like the number three, and they'll try to tie it with everything in scripture that has a three in it. We can't do that. It's not up to us to interpret the signs and the symbols based upon our own knowledge or our own opinion of what the text is saying. So when you get to these difficult books like Ezekiel, you get to these different uh, difficult books like Revelation 21, who will interpret the symbols? God will. And you say, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm just supposed to wait for God to do that. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, when you look at these books together, there is a fluidity throughout the Bible. There is a flowing of thought. There's a consistency of what I would call buzzwords, prophetic buzzwords, that let us know, oh, okay, this is about calamity, or oh, this is about the children of Israel, or oh, this is about you know, some type of regime change. There's words and things we can look for in Scripture. And as I said, we're just scratching the surface today. Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1. If you ever read the book of Ezekiel, there's a lot of things in there that really don't sound uh, realistic, okay? So on the surface, I would say this, first of all, what we deem as realistic or that which is natural, God is not subject to that, okay? That's one thing. Secondly, there's some of this, like the, uh, the angels in the first chapter, is the way he describes them. It nearly sounds like a UFO <laughs> with this spinning bright lights and all that going on. Well, it was meant to be a symbol. So one thing that we know about Ezekiel's letter is it was just like Moses was instructed in Numbers 12, a dream or a vision that was meant to be a dark speech. Ezekiel 1 and 1, now it came to pass in the 13th year in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Shabar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel was a prophet and what he saw there were visions. Now within those visions, there are signs, there are symbols that represent something. There are also just very clear teachings that are sometimes not dark speeches. You say, well, how do you know? And I want to go back to the very first thing we said at the beginning of this lesson. Study to show yourself approved. That's how. It's not going to take this uh, flippant, lazy effort of I'm just wanting to read it once or twice and I'm going to figure it all out. It takes diligence to understand some of these things that we would say are more complicated than just the things that are apparent. In Revelation 1, John 
as he received this revelation, it was said about, the very same thing was said about his revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. Now listen, and he sent and signified it. That is, he put it in sign form or symbols. And so you get into the book of Revelation and you see these creatures that are flying around that, that have the wings of locusts and the face of a man and the mouth of a lion and, and scorpion tails. And you go, what is that? And, and we got guys that go, well, those are obviously Apache helicopters. Well, no, they're not. And we can't just do that. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can go to the book of Daniel and you could put the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel side by side and you could look down the columns and see how those verses match up. And if you look closely in the book of Daniel, he will tell you what those symbols mean. And so when they read the book of Revelation, these people were familiar with those teachings, familiar with those scriptures, and they didn't think Apache, well, of course they didn't have Apache helicopters, but they didn't think these flying creatures breathing fire were really coming. They understood the symbols. They knew that it was about Rome. You say, well, why would God give them a warning in sign language, in symbol form? Could you imagine if God just gave them an apparent letter about the Roman Empire and put that in their hands, how dangerous that would have been for their safety? Anybody with no knowledge of Scripture and no knowledge of the way prophecy worked could have picked that up and read it and the persecution could have been much worse. But this letter was written in a way that only the people who are reading it could understand it. Okay, moving on from prophecy, let's talk about parables for a moment and why Jesus gave parables. Uh, this was actually a question his disciples had for him. Is, is they went around teaching. Uh, Jesus talked a lot in parables and and I would imagine if I walked around, if you followed me around, I told you I was going to have to play with this thing a little bit. If I walked around all week long and, uh, and I talked in nothing but parables to people, at the end of the week you think, that guy is so strange. <laughs> why, why would he talk that way? And they finally just asked Jesus, why do you talk that way? Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. So he answers the question this way. They said, why do you speak in parables? And he said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. What does he mean by that? What does he mean unto them it's not given? Does it mean God looked down and he was very selective in who he wanted to understand and who he didn't? Not in the way that we may think. But the short answer to that is yes. And let's look at the next couple of verses to help us understand that. He says, For whosoever or whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance, but who, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, <clears throat> and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. You say, well, that didn't clear up anything. 
Okay, let's take his words and let's look at them side by side. And this is a part of what we're trying to do. Let's learn how to look at context and let's learn how to look at the scriptures that surround these teachings and see if we can understand what Jesus was telling them. They want to know, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And he says this, for whosoever has to him, more will be given. What does he mean by that? Is he talking about worldly possessions? Is he talking about money? What's he talking about? What did he just say? In verse 9, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, you know what the has is. Whoever has ears to hear, to him more will be given. What will be given? He said, unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. So what Jesus was telling them is if you have ears to hear, if you have a desire to learn and know what I'm talking about, you're going to be given understanding. But if you don't have ears to hear, you're not going to understand the message. And that's why I speak in parables, because those people don't have a desire to hear. So they're not thinking about the message. They're just hearing the message. For instance... The way that Jesus taught parables is he would take things uh, that were typical to everyday life. And he would use that to teach a greater spiritual truth. And so he might say the kingdom of heaven is like unto a woman which hid uh, yeast in dough until the whole was leavened. Was he teaching about making bread? No, these people knew how to make bread. He was taking something they already understood and used something they already understood to teach him something they didn't understand. So if you didn't have ears to hear, what would you hear about? This guy's talking about bread. <laughs> this guy's crazy. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven's like a woman that put yeast in dough. They would not get the message. Jesus would say the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed which is indeed he said the least of all the seeds but he said once it grows it grows up big and it grows up tall and the birds can come and they can make their home in it and these people that didn't have a desire to hear and they wouldn't think about the message and try to apply it spiritually they wouldn't get the message so it takes a desire to know in order to understand that's what Jesus said and he said that's why I speak in parables he said, because some people really don't want the spiritual. They want it simple. And he said, really, they don't want the spiritual because they're carnal. He said, that's why Isaiah said of these people, they see, but they don't perceive. They hear, but they do not understand because he said, they've hardened their heart. He said, that's why I speak in this way, in this veiled way. So recognize that parables exist in Scripture, and they're not meant to be taken literally. Jesus also sometimes would use what we would call figurative language. And I just want to use one example of, uh, or at least an example of one word that he used in various ways. In Mark 10 and 38, the disciples came to him, James and John came to him, and they said, Grant us that we can sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom. And he said, you, you don't know what you're asking. And so here was the test of whether they could sit on the right and left hand, okay? Are you ready for the test? He said, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? So 
Jesus, to grab their attention as to why it was not their place, it was not their lot to sit on his right hand, said, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? So let's take that literally. Jesus is talking about a literal cup and saying, do you have the physical ability to take a cup and drink out of it like I do? Obviously, that's not what he meant. What was he talking about? He was talking about a different kind of cup that he would have to drink. In Matthew 26, as Brother Franklin alluded to this morning from the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why does he use the word cup? He's already identified what the cup was. And that's what he was asking the apostles. That's what he asked James and John. Can you drink of the cup that I must drink of? The cup of death and sorrows in carrying the sins of the world to the cross. He said, I can't give you that honor. Because that's not your place. So he uses the word cup in a figurative way. So what happens is what we do is we get centered in on some idea and we say, well, no, the, the word cup has to be literal. That's what we say. We know what the word cup means. Well, it has to be literal. Well, we already noticed where it's not literal. But then we get to other places and we say it has to be literal. For instance, there's been a doctrine created that we can only drink out of one cup when we partake of the communion because the word cup is singular. So I want to take that and just identify some things about the, the word cup that Jesus uses. Luke twenty two seventeen. this is right before the communion. The first Lord's Supper. He took the cup. How many cups? The cup. One cup, right? He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, take this what? Cup. And divide it among yourselves. So I want to ask you a question. How do you divide a cup? I guess you could throw it on the ground, break it up in pieces, take a hammer and beat it. How would you divide one cup? Obviously, if Jesus hands them a cup and says, divide this amongst yourself, what did he expect them to do? They weren't taking pieces of a cup for a souvenir. He wanted them to divide what was inside the cup and share it. So here the word cup doesn't refer to the vessel, but rather the contents of the cup. And so it wasn't about one cup, one drinking vessel. It was about one cup, that is, one cup that we share. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, not on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which you're familiar with, he makes the statement, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? He identified a connection between the cup and the blood. Not the vessel and the blood, the cup the contents of the cup, they all understood when Paul wrote that letter from another place geographically and he said there's only one cup which we collectively bless. They didn't somehow transfer a drinking vessel from one geographical location to another so they could share the same cup. They shared the same cup because they all took of the cup that represented the blood of Jesus. It was a figurative cup. Okay, Proverbs. And this one... This one usually gets a little controversial, okay? So don't throw rocks yet, because I'm going to make a statement, uh, and somebody may want to throw rocks, but just hold off on that for now. You can throw rocks at me later. Uh, the Proverbs are wise sayings, and they are not absolute truths. They're not absolute truths. 
And here's why. They weren't meant to be absolute truths. They're not mathematical equations. It's not 1 plus 1 equals 2. Sometimes it's 1 plus 1 equals A. (laughs) And here's why. Because he didn't give the proverb so we could look at, oh, well, this plus this always equals this. No, it was something different. For instance, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What we would like to do is make this a mathematical equation. So we go, okay, well, here's this child. He's grown up. He's departed from the way he should go. So obviously, the parents didn't train the child because Proverbs says if you train a child, then they won't depart. That's what we do with it. That's not what he meant, though. He was teaching something entirely different. He was teaching this. If you want a child to grow up and not depart, then train the child. You've got to get involved and train your child. You know what the Bible says about fathers and children? It says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. That's Ezekiel 18.20. You know why these aren't mathematical equations? Because there's this variable that comes in each one of these proverbs, and it's called this, human free will. You may teach your child everything they should know. You may train them, and they leave your home one day, don't they? And they're no longer within your circle of influence. And they go out and they find another circle of influence, an ungodly influence, and one day they depart from the way that they should go. Whose fault is that? It's their fault. And so this is a wise saying. It's not meant to be an absolute truth without exception. Here's another one. Proverbs 17, 18, a man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. What does that mean? It means this. If you co-sign on a loan, you are a fool. That's what he's saying. You say, well, that's insulting. I co-sign. Okay, fair enough. That's not the point, though. He's not trying to label everybody that co-signed as a fool. He's saying this. Look, if you go co-sign a loan and then you eat it and you pay for it, well, obviously that was a foolish decision because the only reason you co-signed a loan is because somebody already said this person couldn't pay the debt. But you and your all-knowing wisdom said, oh, it's okay. I know them. They'll pay the debt. I'll co-sign that loan. He's saying, look, if you eat that debt, that was foolish. But it's not meant to be an absolute mathematical equation so here's the thing about the proverbs we often talk about the old law was nailed to the cross right it was what is the old law though because sometimes we misuse words and we say the old testament was nailed to the cross and when we say the word old testament what we're thinking is genesis to malachi That wasn't all nailed to the cross. That wasn't the point that Paul was making when he said the old law was nailed to the cross. He was talking about Exodus 20 on, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. The law of Moses, the written book of the law, was nailed to the cross. Not the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Some of it's just history. He didn't nail history to the cross. 
He didn't know the Proverbs to the cross. They weren't the old law. They were wise sayings. They were truths about relationships and finance and about evil and wickedness and about consequences. They were timeless truths. And they're not law at all. But they're the wisdom of God that we today need to view as such and not a part of the old law, but they apply to us today. And if you want to learn about wisdom, go read the Proverbs and you'll be wise. And that was the point. Okay, so is everything in the Bible inspired by God? Short answer, no. For instance, you shall not surely die. Who said it? Wasn't God. <laughs> it was the devil. Now, I know I'm playing a little bit of a trick on you and, and going into a little bit of semantics. Everything in the Bible is an inspired record of things that occurred. Okay, The Bible is inspired, but to use blanket statements like everything is inspired by God, be careful. Now, this one's easily recognizable, right? We know God didn't say this. Nobody is contending that God said this, but there are other places that maybe if we're not careful, we might get the wrong idea. And I want to give you an example. Job chapter 4, verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Context. Let's think about this. Job is suffering, and that term really doesn't do what he's going through justice. Job has lost the respect of his wife, the love of his wife, he has lost all ten of his children. He's lost all of his wealth. And he has a terrible, terrible disease. And him and his friends are sitting around trying to figure out what happened. And so this guy stands up and he says, Okay, I know what happened, Job. Listen. It's obvious when somebody gets afflicted, it's because they're a wicked sinner and they're experiencing the judgment of God. That's what he's saying. Look at his words. Whoever perished being righteous, Job, or innocent, the answer is nobody, because what I have observed is that people reap what they sow. Now, is that true? You reap what you sow? Yes, that's a general truth. You reap what you sow. But what he is saying is very different. What he's saying is, if you're suffering, that means God looked down, he deemed you a sinner, and God has caused you to suffer. Now, are these man's words inspired? Is he a prophet? Look at Job 42.7. The man that said these, name was Eliphaz the Temanite. That's who said these words. And here's what God said. So it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, that doesn't mean everything that Job's three friends said was wrong, but obviously they got a lot wrong or God wouldn't have been so angry with them. So we have to look at their words with a grain of salt and recognize that just because we read it in the Bible and these men said it doesn't mean that this is an overarching truth we can take and apply across the board. For one reason... God tells him, a lot of the way you represented me was wrong. But secondly, we can look at scriptures by men that are inspired and know that what Eliphaz the Temanite tried to teach Job is in fact wrong. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8 and 11, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You know what he means? 
He's saying because God doesn't work that way and he doesn't look down and exact punishment on everybody for every sin that they commit, that's why wicked men keep being wicked. See, if God did work that way and he had some punishment that was commensurate to every sin we committed, a lot of people would rethink their evil decisions. But because God doesn't work that way, that's why men keep doing things that are wicked. He goes on to say this, There's a vanity which occurs on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So, you ever looked at this? I'm sure you've observed this in life, haven't you? You looked out and saw somebody that was just a liar, a cheat, and they were prospering in this life. Their health was good. They lived to be an old age, and they were rich and had everything they ever wanted. And you go, that's not fair. And that's what Solomon's saying. Life's not fair. Because sometimes you see a person prosper, and you go, he's wicked. And you see a righteous person suffer, and you go, that's not fair. And that's why I said, this is a vanity of the earth. God is not puppeteering everybody's lives. He's not looking at every decision we make and exacting punishment. We know these words are right. Why? Because we know the wisdom that was given to Solomon was wisdom directly from God. Eliphaz doesn't stand the test. So be careful. We have to ask some questions to know when it's literal. We have to ask some questions to know when it is inspired. And so here's some questions we need to ask. So first of all, the scriptures are always literal unless the context demands otherwise or other precepts demand otherwise. And we've noted some of that today. If it says this is a vision, well, we should know what's coming next is a vision. It's going to be figurative. It's going to be in symbolic language or dark speech. <coughs> We can't stress this enough. The most important ingredient in successful Bible study and dividing the word of truth is context. That's the most important thing. And to ignore context means we ignore the truth. And I know that from personal experience. I've talked to Monty about this some. When I first started preaching the gospel and went out on the road and holding gospel meetings, I had developed about 10 sermons that I thought these are good, strong gospel sermons. And I don't preach any of those sermons today, and I'll tell you why. Because they were riddled with verses that I used out of context to try to teach truth. I approached somebody about this one day. And I said, hey, I learned this from you. <laughs> Explain this to me. And he said, it makes a great point. I was not happy. He said, it's very convincing. Look, we shouldn't care about what wins the argument. What we should care about is handling God's word with integrity. And just because it makes a point for us does not mean it's what it means. We have to look at the context. Who is talking? Who is being addressed? If you want to rightly divide truth, that's a question you've got to ask in every book you read. Who is talking? Because sometimes it's the devil. Sometimes it's Eliphaz. Sometimes it's Saul. 
who's being addressed. Why is that important? Well, let's just say that somebody picks up the book of Ephesians and they start reading through it. And they don't know who the Ephesians are. They don't know anything about their background. They don't know what kind of history they have. They aren't going to understand the message. Why? Because they don't understand certain things about them. Like these were people that were being uh, bombarded with a false doctrine that said they needed to be circumcised. They needed to follow the law of Moses. And without that background information, you really don't understand why the book was written. When was it written is very important. And we'll get into this, Lord willing, and. Uh, study number four was this written in the Old Testament was it under Moses was it before Moses or is it today and especially when we talk about religious practice and authority and about the law that we're under this is a very important question another is what is the flow of thought now this is where uh, I'm going to give you an example of what I just said I guess this is confession time uh, for years and years, I had a very, uh, what I will call cookie-cutter, five-part plan uh, little speech that I would give at the end of a lesson. And you've heard it, haven't you? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Okay, that's true, okay? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's true. If that's an old saying, ask your parents later. <laughs> baby, baby with the bathwater. Uh, so I would get to the confess part, and I would say Matthew 11 and 32 says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is giving the limited commission to his apostles to go only to the house of Israel and to tell them about the coming of the kingdom and he tells them, be courageous and don't fear death. Why? Because whoever confesses me before men, God will confess them. He wasn't talking about the confession that we make as a part of salvation. He was telling these men, go out and tell people about the kingdom and don't be afraid. And he reminds them of something he already taught them. And that's don't care about what men think, care about what God thinks. What's the flow of thought? What's going on? What's the conversation? Who's being spoken to? Those things are extremely important if we're going to rightly divide the word. Another one is, why was the book written? And I'll tell you, especially in the Old Testament, this is important. Because we have to be able to place those books within their proper timeline to understand what was going on in the country at the time, who was ruling, things like that. Okay? As I said, scratching the surface. History, law, prophecy. Sometimes there were letters that were addressing a specific audience. Even in the New Testament, like the book of Philemon was written to one person that was preserved for us today to learn from. I hope that this study will be helpful to you in some way, especially uh, what it may have done is overwhelmed you with the fact that there's so many different areas and aspects of Scripture. But that was part of our purpose today is to just go, you know, we got to take some time. There are things that are very simple to learn. If you sit down and you want to learn how to be a Christian, I'll tell you, you can turn to a couple of chapters in the New Testament and learn how to live the Christian life. Romans 12 will do that for you for one. Ephesians 5 is another really good one. If you want to go read and learn how to live a Christian life, very simple teachings. But not everything in the Bible is that simple. Um, 
So if there's anything that you'd like to study, get with one of the elders, talk to them. Uh, the men of the congregation that teach would love to sit down with you and study further. If there's something you have questions about, ask those questions. We can't always promise we know the answers. But I do know this, and I have confidence in our leadership. What they will do is they're not just going to go, well, I think they're going to go to the scriptures and look for a scriptural answer. Today, if you have a need... We want to address that need in whatever way that we can help you. If you'd like to become a Christian or if you are a Christian and uh, you've been having some type of issues in your life and you want to come to the Savior at this time, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. Come and have a seat as we stand and we sing.